Hello, people. Welcome to Techno Social. If you like what we're doing, then please consider liking us on YouTube and on your podcast provider, sharing our content round, and generally telling people about it. And maybe even consider giving us a donation on patreon.com forward slash techno social. We're back on Techno Social. It's me and Daniel, and we've got Chris Gabriel here from the YouTube channel Meme Analysis this time. Chris, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Your channel is fucking badass, to put it simply. Doing these Jungian, Nietzschean, Poglian at times readings of contemporary culture, particularly through internet culture and memes. And it goes into some quite occult territory. Loving it. And I think we're going to go pretty deep in this conversation, but I'd love to just start to lay a bit of groundwork for people listening who might not be familiar with some of the concepts. If we could go into a little bit, like what do we mean when we're talking of magic and meme magic and taking that kind of analysis to, to symbols? Um, okay. What is, what is meme magic? So meme magic, if we go with the idea that a meme is essentially just the most effective form of a symbol, and what is good about the definition of a meme that is not good in the idea of a symbol is that the symbol is often considered to be static, but the meme is recognized as something that is constantly changing, but it's still recognizable as the meme. Like you can look at a thousand different uh, cups, but you might even apply different ideas uh, to, you might say, well, this cup is this cup, you know, this is not one's cup symbol, but in the meme, there are some really wild, distant plateaus of it, but they can still be recognized. This is this meme. It's much more uh, effective in that mm -hmm. because it is recognized as something that is ephemeral and mercurial, which is what symbols really are. Um, and meme magic is essentially the conscious or you can consciously utilize or you are being unconsciously utilized by the symbol, by the power of this image and those unconscious energies flowing through the internet, especially. So the meme as a vessel of energy, either is something that the magician is able to manifest. They can create a vessel that others will put energy into, or a vessel is making itself known through their creative act. Mm, this is so interesting. You just brought up the idea that sometimes we utilize memes, but sometimes memes utilize us. <clears throat> and there's this weird symbiotic relationship between humans, the memes we use, and the constructs that they form. Um, where does the energy of the meme come from? The energy that animates these, these mercurial flows? I would see, I mean, what, what Nietzsche describes as the monster of energy, the world as will itself, the world as an interplay of drives, constantly creating, constantly destroying, ebbing and flowing. And that is how, of course, how our bodies work. We can recognize that there's expansion and contraction, mm -hmm. but the same is there for communication. Communications are 
um, you know, expressions of libido, as Freud realized. And depending on how effectively your body was utilizing libido and expressing itself, you know, that determined how you spoke. So memes are very, at least internet memes are a very distinctly digitized mm-hmm. libido. It's, it does not have the same, like there are physical memes, I would say, like uh, Spider-Man, mm-hmm. like that is a physical movement. Everybody knows Spider-Man and everybody knows peace or V for victory. Those are physical memes and they require bodily movement or you have like speech games. Uh, those are mimetic, but they are much more lively. They're much more directly in contact with your body. So an internet meme already is like, nope, you know, we're putting this into the digital realm. So it's a very different kind of repetition. Mm-hmm. Exciting. So <clears throat> in, in the context of, you know, broadly speaking, accelerationism, <clears throat> it's said that this technological wave that we're currently riding um, that is now reaching this ankle point of exponential advancement is having a bunch of disruptive effects everywhere. And the world as will, this bunch of energy that is mediated, you know, that is composed of humans and the memes they use is also being affected by that ankle point of, of technology. What do you think is kind of the main effect that digital and internet culture is, going, is having on this world of energy through obviously memes? Well, it's, it is what Nick Land talks about with it being schizophrenized. It is being rapidly schizophrenized. Just like we were saying, like this was what it was a social meme. It was a meme that almost could bring in a unity. You know, everybody who read Spider-Man could do that and they would recognize it. But today memes are much different online because they are a means of isolating further. They are a means of going deeper into something completely uh, deprived of social socializing. So as you accelerate the body into something that is digital, into a machine, which is what Victor Tosk talks about. Like he talks about, like Deleuze gets the idea of the becoming machine from Tosk's influencing machines um, because the schizophrenic feels themselves becoming a machine, their body, their, their unconscious body double their projected unconscious becomes machine. And so we like, this is one of the recurring themes in a lot of my, my ideas is like everything that schizophrenics dreamed of, we have actualized, we made it real. Like they dreamed of uh, energies transmitting information and we made it happen. Uh, Just like we're making, we're making a mass schizophrenizing technological body, Mm -hmm. uh, a real thing now. Yeah. So there's this idea going through my head now that perhaps what once people in the past related to as gods, these, these kind of mythologized symbolic figures of unconscious projection that people could, could come around. And the crucial point is actually worship in a shared physical space, like in a temple or indeed in a, um, a hearth in the house now the same kind of figures express themselves through memes, but it's all done on a computer, on a screen. And so there's something much more atomized about the way of interacting with them, which, which I think also brings it off into this kind of schizophrenic effect, far more bizarre pieces of the, uh, the collective unconscious can be, 
can be brought up into in, into what then becomes a, a shared collective fantasy because because you can wind up with the pockets of the internet where everybody is going seriously into the forever alone meme or the doomers as you call them that's why things like area 51 where there were there was a sizable meetup um those are important events when that meme makes the transition when it is able to cross the threshold into the physical reality because the gods that were worshipped at churches at hearths at uh festivals you could, they were the gods were felt the the god made themselves known through the bodies of the worshipers so when you get a meme strong enough to actually materialize it is without a doubt it's very important and i would i would imagine it will soon become traumatic it will be increasingly traumatic. There's an essay by Jung. I can't remember the name of it now, but he's essentially arguing that what happened in Nazi Germany was this archaic figure of Wotan, who is very connected. It's kind of the European Dionysus expressed itself and bubbled up into the personality of Hitler and the German people. And they became possessed by this kind of yeah, Dionysian frenzy. I'm wondering if, to your eyes, you see any of these very arcane figures from mythology popping up in contemporary memetics? Without a doubt. And that was the first video that I had done was about that exactly. And yeah, and the essay is just Wotan. That is it. Um, the first video I did was about um, Pepe and Wojak being uh, Dionysus and Apollo. Um, one being chaotic and monstrous and the other being rational and miserable. So without a doubt, like memes are purely just expressions of like, and the thing, and this is the thing that I think a lot of people miss out on in the concept of the archetype is that the, because a lot of Jungians focus on the archaic imagery, but the imagery really isn't that important. The important thing is the energy that produced it and which continues to produce symbolism in new forms, but that's generally ignored because it's, you know, formerly all the world was insane. Now we, now we live in a free, a rational world. There are no archetypes here, um, but it's not true. They're, they're everywhere. So yeah, memes without a doubt are almost all, any powerful enough one is a product of archetypal archaic mm -hmm. energy. Okay, let me, let me try to break the, my, my question into two parts and kind of frame it. Um, you mentioned that perhaps today's society is also under, and obviously is under the effect of the archetypal energies that once bubbled in the past under different guises. Um, and today, because we're like fish in the water, we can't really distinguish them. And that's why your channel is, is so interesting because you perform that task of analyzing, kids analyzing the memes and seeing what energy bubbles up in them. Now, let's talk about cults, right? Because one of the things that we're interested in, uh, I mean, personally, in, in, is, is ontological design. So this idea that we are, can design the ontological experience of people, their reality, by designing the, their contexts. So if we were to apply this to the mimetic lens, it's not necessarily about designing the memes themselves, but designing what the person will be through the memes. So designing this energetic exchange and, and, and we can see this in internet cults. So, so you know, these doomer type uh, people, they will essentially populate their perception so much with these symbols 
that they, their whole life will become kind of a self-reinforcing sigil that then will ritualize whatever it is that their perception and attention is into another state. Soul alchemy, call it what you will. <clears throat> I know that you've spoken in a previous podcast, I think it was with Jason Murphy, about Justin, about Justin Murphy, yeah, about this, uh, the need for, or rather us living in a time that's a golden age for cults, that's a golden age for the next L. Ron Hubbard's, for the next Walt Disney's, for the next, uh, whatever the name the guy is who invented Mormonism from Freemasonry. So my question to you is, is um, from a practical perspective, a technical perspective, a meme construction perspective, what do you think are perhaps the properties of memes for the future, for, for the cult building techniques of the future? Well, it's, I think it's going to be very easy because I think you only need a good, you need a good one. It, it only needs one. It's not about like, I think it would be a mistake to consider um, the tiny memes too much. Like it's the big, the big idea, the big fish. And the big fish is um, like an example of a modern, a modern one would be like uh, Nick Fuentes who like created the Gripers. I don't know if you know, he, he just, he's like a live stream. He's a podcast, a political live streamer, but he is a voice and that's what matters. He's a voice for discontents and they, he is the meme. He doesn't, he doesn't, he there, and there are subsequent memes that came out of him, but he is the meme. He is a mimetic personality. And so I think that it's the same as it was in that you have a cult leader who is a charismatic, iconic persona and people are attached and de desire them. But what we have now is the ability to reduce that even further. In the past, cult leaders needed a, a venue. They needed a, a church or a place or just a, a way to talk to somebody. They don't even need that now. You know, you just make a video, you just put on a live stream and a cult will form. And what's the role of the master meme that is at the center of that cult? And what's the role of the spiritual talents of the individual to be able to formulate that meme, which is kind of the hard part? Well, reproduce. I mean, of course, just reproducing, just just taking over as many minds as possible, trying to influence and distort as much as possible. And as to what it takes, I think there's a lot of factors, but as a Jungian, I think it's very much having traits that are similar to old things, to old meaningful ideas. If you can, if you can be like, there's a concept that I like a lot called the Aurea Catena, which imagines that like, but there, it, it's not a genetic, it's, a, it's literally a mimetic lineage. Like Newton felt he was a part of an Aurea Catena of past alchemists and magicians. And he was just the latest product on this golden chain. Mm -hmm. So I think archetypal individuals are part of an Aurea Catena. And the idea is not, it's not even just, I am the end of it. It's just, we need to keep this going and going and going. So cool. That's, that's kind of a mimetic variant of uh, Delanda's idea of the machinic phylum. When he says that te technology has descend from each other and that there's a lineage to technologies. So that, so the same happens with memes and its constructs. I haven't, well, he, yeah. go on. Sorry. 
No, just I hadn't read I hadn't read Delanda, but I I do I had heard of him. Hmm. What I was going to say is that increasingly I'm thinking that if you try to take a monist worldview, the idea that everything you know there's a single substance and there's just many many attributes to it, then the distinction between human and technology is pretty artificial. It's about as artificial as the distinction between nature and culture. I was at an exhibition in London yesterday about the history of electronic music. And there's this quote by um, one of the dudes from Kraftwerk, the early electronic music act, right? And he's saying, if you put one of those electro, it might be an electromagnetic cardiogram, something, you know, those things that can track an electric signal on a human body, you see an electric signal, right? And he's always saying, there is no line between us and the electric tools that we use, really. We are all products of this resonating um, electromagnetic frequency. And so within that lens, it makes total sense to talk about, say, lineages both of hard techs and what we might define as socio-technologies practices of being both in relationship to others which you could call cults or religions or even political movements but then also even even internal psycho soul technologies things like meditation alchemy wizardry tarot reading I think very much in the, I, I view technology very much as a product of the Apollonian drive to produce sculpture. We have really just found a way of solidifying drive um, and even more so animating that static permanent thing. Um, so it certainly is like, we are that we are. So every organism is a kind of, materialized, actualized potential drive that found itself existing. And, you know, Land in Thirst for Annihilation talks about like bones being um, a symbol of betrayal because after we, after we are gone, our bones are left. The machine is like, that's the joy in like the Terminator. You get rid of the flesh, he's walking out. He's walking out a, a living skeleton. And that's what's great about the machine is that it's a drive, it's solidified drive that can't be destroyed. It does not die. Mm, so you said that technology is, is Apollonian, but I guess perhaps, but then doesn't every new innovation have to come out of something that would come from the more Dionysian realm, that, that creative space beyond good and evil. And so I would, I would almost reframe that as like, the formalization and establishment of a technology might be the attempt to shift something that was originally purely Dionysian into something more Apollonian so that it can be, the beast can be ridden in a sense. Well, the energy, the electricity itself is Dionysian, but it being reduced and put into outlets and wires is Apollonian. Mm. So this, this brings me to, I think, some of your videos on contemporary sexuality and, um, and the dating scene, which are, are just fucking mind-blowing. And I remember in one of them, you're discussing this. <laughs> I think you're almost giving advice to guys who have gotten their libidos too wrapped up in the machine, which, I mean, it's like a, such a contemporary problem. It's certainly something I've battled many times. Uh, but, you know, saying, go out and embrace your, your Dionysian, like contact that part of yourself that wants to, to crush a boulder. You know, and I'm wondering, 
what do you think are some good ways to contact that Dionysian energy? I was, I was writing the other day. I was at the park with my girlfriend and I was writing and I was thinking about how, um, how do you really beat Christ? How do you really um, defeat life denial? And I realized like, well, I just, I just need to leap up on this table. And I did, and I leapt upon the table and we just started like jumping around. Like she was drawing and I was writing, but we just decided to just jump around and dance. And that is, it is spontaneity. Um, it is, it is taking a, a distinguished shift from anything monotonous, any, any repetitive drive must be altered. And that was like one of the big ideas from Burroughs and in, um, in Lieber Null with Peter Carroll, chaos magicians are constantly, any, any pattern they make, they have to break. They have to continuously break patterns to maintain energetic vitality. <clears throat> energetic vitality and, and its source and its potential sources is something that's very interesting to me because, you know, uh, the, perhaps the drive of technology, Apollonian, as you say, to take energy and make it into things, create philosophy, philosophies of how things are, then the converse of that would be chaos magicians talking about not how things are, but how they become in a more Deleuzean flowy type way, which, you know, Deleuze sounds like a chaos magician. Um, now, I'm a designer. We are very interested in this channel and, and, and that interplay between the establishment of a pattern, of a rhythm, and the ability to break it. Um, because, you know, for the sustenance of the human energy system, you kind of need, you kind of need them both to exist in a decent way. Uh, I, wonder, I wonder what's your view on, like, you know, the relationship between the breaking of that pattern and the pattern itself, the building of a pattern, the building of a different pattern other than, you know, the, the hegemonic that, that exists in a, any given moment, um, if that makes sense. Well, I think, I think Bataille is getting at that constantly, uh, especially in the story of the eye. Like I had realized after reading the story of the eye that every cloud is like a rupture of the sky, that they are, they are uh, cuts, they're lacerations on the sky. Can you give an overview of what that story is? Mm -hmm. The story, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know, two kids fuck each other and are obsessed with eyes and goring and um, killing people. I don't know. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> um, I learned about just like everything good that I like, I learned about it from music. Um, so Bataille's focus is on that traumatic rupture of a pattern. Like the story of the eye is it's, it, it is about you take the two children who might've just been childhood friends normally, but then even the very first lines, you know, blah, 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 I was a shy child. But then I asked her to sit on a fucking saucer of milk. I asked her to put her pussy into milk. Immediately, the pattern is disrupted. And not only that, but the prevailing order, which is that milk is for the, he says, milk is for the pussy. Don't you agree? That is the prevailing order. The idea of the cat who is a pussy cat drinks milk. But this is then immediately disrupted because I am, and then it is a becoming. It is a becoming of the girl's pussy into pussy. It is a, a losing of any ordered words. 
And I think that's, there, there was a joke about, uh, there was like a, a 4chan green text about Wittgenstein saying that as if that was something that he had thought of. And I, it's interesting to look at it as a, again, the meaninglessness of words in the context of somebody who wanted uh, words to mean something. But we have to just be continuously rupturing to get that vitality, a continuous wounding for the purpose of greater health. This, this just reminds me of uh, Gerard, and I'll tell you how. Um, the ability to extract energy by breaking something that already exists, by consuming its stored up libido, by breaking an already existing pattern that people have been doing for a long time, is the joy uh, of, of transgression. That's what Foucault talks about, about the, the, the pleasure of just you know, being uh, transgressive. Um, so you're breaking, you're consuming something, consuming the dead body and the dead attention and the dead libido that people actually devoted to that particular order of things. Now, Christ, according to Gerard, kind of paid those dues back and, and sort of he was himself that sacrifice so that no one else would have to engage in these rivalrous dynamics. And again, it's, it's, I've always, I always tend to come back to this because while there's a great tradition of of various thinkers who actually emphasize a lot the destructive, um, the energetic potentials of destruction, of disruption. Uh, and obviously, you know, we've been riding on the blood of dead dinosaurs, you know, all the way up to the 21st century and to Mars, who knows? There's also something else, some perhaps some, some constructive impulse. Uh, and I, you mentioned that it felt Apollonian. Um, you know, Jung talks about inventing new bottles for the new wine, but where does the new wine come from? From breaking the old ones? Or where does it come from? Well, you know, destroyers, they will call us, but we are creators. Lawbreakers, they will call us, but we are the creators of the new values. Um, I think it is very wrapped in what Nietzsche does describe as creative destruction. Um, I think about this often in the context of Aleister Crowley, where he was working against Christianity and so deemed himself the beast. Nietzsche is working against Christianity and so names himself the Antichrist, but both are working towards a creative path out. Um, but they realized from a magical mimetic point of view, I need to be the Antichrist. I need to be the great beast. Because if you are not, identifying as the opposite of something po powerful and popular. If you give an alternative, it will be immediately recapitulated and Christianized. So you need, you know, you have to be cruel to be kind. We, we can't just create something and expect it to do well on its own <clears throat> without it being immediately and then consistently attacked until it is just, you know, sucked mm -hmm. back in. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain, um, dialectical positioning that you believe is essential for creativity. And, and many people say this, that, that before creation happens, there needs to be a destruction, a displacement of previous order so that something else can arise. <clears throat> Isn't that, even the board talks about that with, with the recuperation of the market and the society, the spectacle, spectacle having this property of recuperating everything into its guise. And so in that sense, yes, it, it feels inescapable and it feels like the task of, Mm, trying to figure something out 
of that, it feels quite weird and it feels quite hard. Um, and it feels like the paths to reach there might be very winding. I'm reminded of the idea of crazy wisdom versus mimetic desire. Um, you know, are you familiar with, with, with the term mimetic desire? And I'm not familiar with that crazy wisdom. <clears throat> mm. Well, let me reframe this. Um, how does what you said properly differ from uh, the postmodern mantra that everything is permitted? It does. How does. Okay. So it doesn't relate at all. No, no, no. I mean, it doesn't differ at all. Mm-hmm. So it, it's precisely that. Okay. Um, so, I mean, what I might push on that is, is that if there's a sense that what we're saying is that people could benefit from discovering this Dionysian transgressiveness, there's a sense in which what culture has been trying to do for 60 plus years is is to be transgressive to tear down the boundaries the the repressive restrictions around sexuality that existed to create new subject identities but i think it's just run into a dead end it becomes this like everybody be whatever you want to be everything is permitted it's almost like it loses the transgressive potential because the boundaries aren't like there's a fixation on getting rid of the boundaries rather than having boundaries and then stepping beyond them. I'm not sure if I'm being clear here, but I think, I guess what I would say, and this is the problem with taking that line out of context. I mean, are you familiar with um, what Hassan Isaba like did with his life before he said those last words? Because his last words are, nothing is true, everything is permitted. Mm. But the reason that that, that that is so important and that that was fundamental to Nietzsche, it's not because that is just, okay, this is it, because it is. But what really matters is the context, which is that he created the cult of the assassins. And it was the most well-disciplined group in the world. He could, you know, and he was at the very top. Mm. Uh, he could say you know, kill yourself. They would do it without a question. They would kill themselves just immediately at order. They were so well disciplined. They could, they, they reached beyond what was imaginable at the time. That is the truth of nothing is true. Everything is permitted. It's not just, Oh, Hey man, let's just do what we want. It is nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Therefore the responsibility that has fallen upon you as somebody who knows that is the greatest weight imaginable. And the problem is that nobody is responsible. They, are, they, will, they will take the pleasure of that idea that I, I am free to do what I want. They don't realize that freedom is a greater oppression upon their, their easy, whimsical desires. It is a great weight. And that is the whole point of Thelema. Thelema is 90% discipline, 10% magic. Hmm. And... Reich, I think, is the other, you know, the key figure um, in the sexual revolution who is denied. He coined the term, but his idea was not just, hey, guys, just do what you want. Just do, you know, just make sex this big, you know, media thing. It's not as if we're actually transgressing. Again, I think the problem was that it was all recapitulated. It was all made into a media-based movement, but there's not really any magic 
going mm -hmm. on because the ideas that are central to it are misunderstood. What I've often, and this is my, my, I guess my vision of my arc, what I hope to do is to take what was thought of in the 60s in the Cultural Revolution and create its aesthetic inversion because I like everybody they like, they just did everything wrong. I get it, I get it. So your perspective feels like one that is more about the individual power that is latent in statements such as everything is permitted and its magical consequences. It's almost like you're trying to take this uh, plethora of, of things that become permissible, but rebuild them into something that you feel is powerful, such as meme creation, such as aesthetic revaluation. And that is the importance, you know, Crowley has the wonderful line, which is just one star in sight. And that thou hast no, it's not just do what thou wilt, it's thou hast no right, but do what thou wilt. If you're doing something else, if you're not on that one very tight path, you are a slave. You, you have been enslaved by something else. So I really do think that like postmodernism as an amorphous blob of deconstruction that is the ill-dignified, chaotic reality of what we've got now. The dignified, magical perspective should be, I am creating order. I am creating reality. Precisely. I'm finding an archetype within myself that then I can follow the path true to that archetype and, and unfold it in a Heideggerian sense without it necessarily being able to be something that you can regulate with 10 commandments and say, this is what is appropriate of a warrior to do, but it's to think I have a warrior spirit. And so I will, mm -hmm. I will take the sword to the enemies that need to be cut. We have to become what we are as Jung says. And why is that so difficult? Well, we have a, a thousand antichrists. We have a thousand de in, intentional deceivers. Um, each one, you know, making a buck off of, you know, this is the meaning of your life. This is how to live. This is what to do. This is how to be free. Well, there's so many industries, this whole personal development industry now that's grown as a parasite off the back of proper archetypal intergenerational training you know, once upon a time you'd be a young man and you'd find someone to apprentice under whether that would be a priest or a craftsman but now <laughs> the python life is certainly i've noticed it's i knew a guy who was involved in this personal development scene once and um, i went to a convention with him and it was fucking bizarre it was like the church of the ego and the whole day was a um, a series of different 15 minute presentations by people all doing different riffs on the same theme of essentially sign up with me and I'll show you how to make this much money in this much time. And then you're going to be able to have your own mentees. This is everything I've done in my life. This is, <laughs> this is where I was 10 years ago. I was you, but then I started coming to these conventions and now look at my shoes. And it, it was, there's something nauseating about it really, because, because these people have the authority of, of the preacher. They speak with the voice of God. That's what's projected onto them. But all that is told is that you can, you can have the fancy shoes and you can be up on this stage too. There's nothing more to it than that. It just feels to me like a great pyramid scheme. That's why I use the word parasitical for it. I, I also think there's a deeply, um, 
homoerotic feeling in that. Like something, um, I don't know if you use Twitter or not, um, like Logo de Dallas and um, CompBot, or they talk about this a lot, but like people, the guys who like obsess over them, or, uh, but especially the really like wicked ones are always like, why are you fat? Why are you fat? Like, you should be hot. You should be, you know, strong. It's like, yeah, because they want to fuck you. Like, it's it's a desire for this ideal masculine form. And then it's a guy, you know, you could be like me, but it's really, you could get fucked by me. You could, mm. you, you could follow my order. It's a very fascist, homoerotic system. And people on my channel want, they, they want that of me. They want me to be their father. And it's, it's, it's a really unfortunate thing because that's really not the point of being uh, convincing, I guess, of being a, a, a thinker. It shouldn't be, I want my flock. I want my sons. But, you know, I want to change the world. And that doesn't mean making more conformists. Well, this this actually reminds me now of, of Crazy Wisdom, which Daniel dropped in a second over, which is this style of of authority, typically from, from spiritual teaching, right? But the idea being that a crazy wisdom teacher will behave in a way that is so unpredictable and assholeish that he will or she will scare away all but the most brave-hearted and serious of a potential uh, potential disciples. And the point is that they will do everything they can to break your ego and to point out your weaknesses precisely so that you can grow, but <laughs> it's not for the faint hearted. Now a friend of uh, a friend of ours, Andrew Sweeney, um, who we've done some podcasts with um, was telling me that he met his, uh, his Tantra teacher. He's a Buddhist Tantra guy. Um, and he said the guy was smoking and drinking the whole weekend long. And he said he never smokes and drinks except when he's out in public talking to his students for precisely that reason to, I think, to dispel any of these projections that he's going to be able to be this, uh, this ideal father who is going to take them under his wing. And it's like, no, I'm going to fucking do all the shit that you think that you shouldn't be doing to point out to you that actually this idea that you shouldn't be engaging in, in drinking or smoking is also a bit of a self-deception. Mm -hmm. No doubt. Um, that's why like, uh, like Zizek has a really funny one, like, you know, um, murder as one of the fine arts would today be smoking as one of the fine arts. Like people think that enlightenment is just a series of logical um, victories over the irrational. Like if I just quit smoking, if I just quit drinking, if I just quit jerking off, then I would be a God. Like it's not anything like that. It's, it is the utilization, it is being, it is becoming that, it is being uh, irrational and rational as you will. There can't be just, I do this, I do this, I do this, and now I'm perfect. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what we'd refer to as the sutric mode, right? Which is, again, an idea from the East, but the idea that the religious spiritual path is by following penances and disciplines and giving up certain things of eating, certain drinking, sex, etc. Whereas then the move into the tantric path is to embrace them all and go like, I'm going to, I'm going to drink and then be hung over. And there's a, there's a possibility of being a Buddha with all, all of these realms in the, in the Buddhist sense, at least. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like, I, uh, I always enjoyed that idea of um, endless, like, cause that's what Crowley did, you know, and he did, he would scare off everybody who came expecting this great wisdom, this great figure of wisdom. 
and I definitely think that there's a, a there's definitely a, a Western interest in Tantra for the wrong reasons, which is just I want to do what I want and feel enlightened doing it, rather than I am doing what I want truly. Like, I, so I think I do think that it, it can be dangerous because I do think it's right and I do think it's good. I just think a Western interpretation is oftentimes something very silly. Just like like the Kama Sutra is not people don't actually fucking read it. It's just like, oh, sex positions, man. Ha ha. Mm-hmm. Hey, Chris, I wanted to ask you a little uh, something. So <clears throat> if you look at the archetype of the magician as the practitioner who manipulates and wields a series of symbols to produce certain ends, certain changes, either within himself or on reality, or rather on this continuous feedback loop between the one and the other. Um, However, today, these, these old symbols, these, these pentagrams and all these old tarot cards, they become a little bit uh, deflated in terms of value because our, our informational landscape has been saturated with a fuckload of images. And so it's not like those images carry the same uh, capacity as vessels to hold that libido as they did 200 years ago, uh, 1,000 years ago. So having said that, uh, as a practitioner, or if you had to say something to a practitioner, if, had to, if you had to advise them in this, in this direction, what, what vessels, what symbols, what memes might be useful to perform similar kinds of, of, of a work, similar kinds of... Effects? I think that we, we're stuck in that point now. Um, like I have my own little narrative that I have made uh, in a comic book with my girlfriend, which is that of Saturn has been reduced to a floating head in space, stuck in a cube. And um, he is endlessly trying, he's eating, he eats planets, he eats meteors to uh, sustain himself. And he is doing this to try and avoid any other creations from occurring. He wants to maintain his own authority. And what comes of his destruction is uh, countless headless children, headless infants who are trying to form heads for themselves. Uh, This is how I view new gods. They are blind drives trying to materialize themselves through, uh, because you need the mask to become, you need a face, you need an ego to utilize the Mm. energy effectively but we have a lot of giant heads, a lot of heads that don't have any drive left behind them. They're just like we were talking about traps and just a lot of trapped energy. So we have all these children trying desperately to become, and it, it takes destroying the father. Um, Mm. Like almost like we're at a, we're at a kind of reverse Mecca. Like the, the idea of the, the Mecca is really important to me. Like, because you have before Allah, before Muhammad, there are like thousands of gods, thousands of little gods, little idols being worshipped at Mecca. And he is, he, 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 you know, gets the word of Allah and goes and destroys them all and asserts there's one true God and it works, of course. Um, but we're at the point now where that God is dead and we need to have a lot of little gods fighting for, for supremacy 
even though it will ultimately, I think, result in a, another singular God coming about, what I call mm. the, bi- the big meme. Like, every little God is an attempt at becoming the one God. So that's kind of my interpretation. That's so cool. Let's dig a bit into that. I mean, that, 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 that sounds like uh, Nuo Machia, this idea by, by Dugan, um, when he talks about we're back in the age of Titans. That we're back. It's Titanomachia. So, so you know, obviously because the old the old master memes, master gods are dead. Now there's a lot of headless children. That's so so cool. Like a lot of drives without any manifestation, seeking to pop its head into our dimension. Would you care to sort of elaborate on on that aspect, please? I guess. And the question is, how can they do it? Like. Because I, I, the way I depict it is, you know, they're, they, they take sand. They're on a beach. They come out of the water. And they're taking sand and they're trying to make masks. They take dirt and mud and they're trying to make a face for themselves. So we have all of these drives that are they're trying in very weird ways, I think. And that's why the internet's really weird right now. Because it is. They, people always say, oh, it's like the Wild West. But it actually is. It actually is like <laughs> the Wild West. It's, it's not structured. It's not ordered yet. Um, that's something that Nick Land talked about on Justin Murphy's podcast, like the the misery, the defeat of Delusians when that when it came out that like the winner of like the internet is Facebook, Fate, so like against faciality and against um, arborescent books, and it's like here is a, a book a book of faces, and it's like no, this is what happened. Um, but the way that I see it is essentially just like all of these drives are trying very very strange ways to get a mask to get a face to get a way to affect the world and this will this is being done in a lot of really bad ways now of course you have a lot of really negative but powerful and vital outcomes of this the striving but i think that it will produce some of the greatest beautiful things uh in our century so what, what would be some of those examples? Well, like, I think without a doubt, like, obviously the Donald, um, he, he is somebody who went against the prevailing order using a drive that almost nobody else even knew was there and rode it to the top. And, you know, David Lynch, I care because I love fucking, I love David Lynch. He said he might go down as one of the most, uh, as one of the best presidents because he opened the doors to artists, to anybody. Because everybody used to say anybody could be the president. But now that's actually true. We're at the point now, like, you don't need to be a politician. You can be a creative, you can be an artist, you can be an actor, and you can be the president. You just have to have that energy behind you. Like, I I think the concept of a Kanye presidency is very possible and very good. Um, Like, the people who make the mistake of going against the Donald through the venue of, like, yeah, but the, the mainstream is good. Like, politics as they were, as this, like, wretched machine, that's the good thing. This is what we want to get back to instead of, like, yep, we, we got him. We need to, we need to get somebody better. There's not even a hint of that because it's so frightening to imagine like, well, we're, you know, we're in the middle of a new, a new desert, a new era. We have to start establishing things or we will perish. You know, 
I remember in the Justin Murphy interview now, actually, you were talking at one point saying that Trump is a sorcerer in his own way. You know, he references Jung and psychological types in the art of the deal too. And he has this, um, this, this kind of immunity to anything that the, the mainstream media critique machine can throw at him. I wonder, is there any, are there any expansions you can make on that analysis? Because I think it's absolutely fascinating. Like, trying to understand what it is about the Donald that actually gives him this, this strange power that he has. Well, even if we just look at it with, um, with the kind of framework that I gave with the head, the big head versus a baby, um, he is an infant. He is a fat, chubby infant, but he got a really funny mask. He got a great mask, you know, golden, crazy hair, um, or an orange face. He's like, he's got a clown mask on, but he's got that energy. He has that vitality and you kind of have a dead machine trying to, trying to eat him, Saturn trying to eat a child, but he can't even bring himself to do it. Like, um, it's, it's pathetic. And it should, because if you think about the, the way that these structures used to be, or that maybe we just imagined that they were, you would think it would be very easy. You would think that there are the safeguards and checks and balances to prevent this, but it's never been that way. Energy has always been the very uh, stuff of our lives. Um, it really just comes down to the need for more energetic individuals. There's obviously a power vacuum in reality right now. And I think we have very few people willing to be that, willing to be that expression of energy. A power vacuum in reality. Fuck me. It, it feels like, uh, you know, sometimes sigils and memes are sentient symbols. It feels like they, they want something. But on the other hand, it also feels like some people are vessels for that energy. And then they, they are absolutely empty inside. You know, Carl Jung analyzing Hitler, he was saying this man is is empty. He, you know, Mussolini, you look at him, you know who he is. He's, you know, this big, mean guy, you know what you get. But Hitler, Hitler was this sort of um, empty type vessel that would then be possessed at a certain moment and become that mask, that, that face that would go into the body, uh, which would be perhaps this unarticulated will that already exists out there. And it's a mutual, it's a mutual thing. That's what's, misunderstood and i think that that is the great misunderstanding of of the 20th century people love to blame hitler stalin mussolini the people wanted change the p it was the people's will that found its voice in those figures and it's a cop-out if we just say well they they were deceivers they were you know they they deceived the whole nation they got everybody tricked it's just not true and that's why we're at the point now, and I don't know if I talked about it on Murphy, but like we're at a point now, or we have been at a point for a while where the idea about Donald Trump is like, it was Russians. Russians are the ones who got him in or that, you know, they, all the Americans were just innocent lambs. They were all tricked into this, this evil man's plan. It's like you, this is why you're going to lose again. The people wanted him and they still want him. This is, I think, the, the importance of Reich, uh, Wilhelm Reich. Like, people want their own oppressors. Well, everything that occurs politically is a product of our wills. We want what occurs. And it really does come down to a 
an energetic issue, a sexual problem, which is why we desire oppressive figures. Like I'm not defending the Donald, what he does. I'm just trying to show like people want him. They still want him. They want people like him. Other countries want people like him. It is a problem of the desire of the population. It is not their fault. Like what Nietzsche says, like they have no other, they have no freedom to not be what they are. They are a product of will. You know, it's fascinating that you trace that to there being some kind of sexual issue. It puts me in mind of a point made by our friend Alexander Bard, the philosopher. Um, and he talks about the lack of phallus in post-World War II Western society. The idea essentially being that that role of the the strong, noble, often masculine, but not necessarily, but just that kind of archetype, that, that hero who will go out and slay the dragon and come back and bring abundance to the society. And he says that rather than that, like the trauma of the world wars was that all, her- all heroic and especially heroic masculinity was associated with Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini. And what comes in its place is this excessively feminized archetypically way of viewing the world, which is not to go out and slay the dragon in a heroic sense, but to, to take care of the weakest and the needy with whatever exists already. There's no will to create anymore. There is only a will to, to lift up from the bottom as opposed to to bring down or to, to strive outwards towards towards the cosmos. Does that ring true with, with a sexual analysis? No doubt. And that is what um, Land talks about as well. Um, and he said, like, the, the true lasting, the, the greatest weapon that Hitler had was that now we, now we are convinced of a Nazi unconscious that, like, everybody's unconscious is Nazis. If we were to ever let our drives express themselves, we would all become Nazis. And that is why there is no effective, powerful sexual expression today, because we know that it's powerful and we know that it is forceful and that it will change things. But all force, all power, all change are now fascist or communist. There is no, um, but the other thing, that I would say is like, that's okay. It's okay because just like sexuality, it will make itself known. It will come about no matter what you don't people. And this is a, this is an issue that a lot of like people who are into like men's rights talk about like society hates men. Society hates men. Now I don't, I'm not able to be a man because society tells me I can't. It's like, no, if you were a man, you would be a man regardless of what society said just like if you're going to be a sexual force in this world, you're going to do it no matter what. There's no social impact that matters other than the one you make. People don't realize how fragile structures and um, social standards are. If you're a powerful enough person, you will change everything around you. Mm. And you will convince others that what you did was the right thing. History would be rewritten in your wake, right? It'll be a totally Hegelian historicism. That is what mimetics can be. A mimetic individual does that. I just think most of it's with a very bad, boring, uh, 
goal. A lot of people, they, cause they are possessed themselves. They don't have a cool like reason to do what they do. Like Fuentes and the Donald, like, I don't know. Politics are very ill dignified to me. Um, I think they're, they're of a very low value in terms of greater human potential, especially if, if, I don't know, I don't know what, I don't know if you have got how magical you guys are, but like, I think, <laughs> um, perhaps even just naively, like we are at the age of Aquarius. We're at a turning point aeonically. And the fact that all we can muster up is like some, what, political dissidents getting popular? That's pathetic and boring. We should be at a time when things are changing in a very massive way, spiritually and socially. And we haven't really provided much. We haven't really had anybody doing anything that's truly worthwhile. And uh, the focus on politics is very neurotic. Again, a sign of a lack of sexual vitality. I think you're totally right. I think what the music subcultures of the last 60 years or so have been are the kind of nascent attempts at finding that that magical creativity again. Techno, reggae, heavy metal, punk, hip-hop. They're all striving at something. There's a, a deep power in them and their ability to... To, to, to cause the people who identify with them to, to at least for a time be othered by mainstream society, to, to be shunned by it, Sense shows that they're on the right track. There is a massive creative libido there. But what I think happens is that they are still working within the nihilist framework of modernity and postmodernity. And so about the best that most of these movements can or has been able to conjure so far is either one love, just to kind of like base hippie ideal or fuck authority i'm going to do what i want again that everything is permitted but without the discipline or senseless hedonism but what i am very interested in and daniel and i have had conversations with with our friend david burke who's a philosopher and a heavy metal guy about this is is the the pathic the the energetic potential that comes across say in a heavy metal show the, the blast beats, the mosh pits. And you can come up with that in any genre as well, like being stoned out your brain at a dub reggae night, fucking some dude in a cage in an underground techno club in Germany. And as long as a shift is made from thinking that I'm doing this to rebel into I'm doing this actually to, uh, to tap into something magical, to, to reframe how I see myself and reality, it's it's... That, that is the path, I think. That's certainly one of the big paths. You know, I mentioned this exhibition I was at yesterday and I, I enjoyed it. But one of the things that frustrated me is again and again, there was this idea that electronic music and the clubbing scene is a place for escape. And I was like, no, that's completely wrong. That's completely wrong. It's not about escape or escape is perhaps the first step, but it's about stepping out to then step back in, but with something new to be charged. I think that I completely agree. I think that, we can even just put it to two words, just art. It's just art, you know, that's okay. They can have their fun. It's just art. Um, it's complete castration. I actually, when I was younger, that's what I did. I did music and we had a fucking crazy punk band and we were very um, theatrical and relatively violent like we would throw things at people. We would break instruments. We, um, we involved food a lot, throwing food at people. 
And like, we definitely, we made kind of a, a voice known. People knew who we were because we weren't doing what everybody else, we weren't just kind of like, you know, oh, we're just making music. We like, we like making music. Like, of course we like making music, but like, we like being aggressive and, you know, pushing you all. Um, and to me, the theatricality is fundamental. And that, maybe that's just like part of, because I'm very camp. Like I really like like silly, uh, I really like silliness. Like I think Guar is cool. I think uh, King Diamond, King Diamond is my favorite metal artist. Like I think that's cool. I like, I like theatrics. I like the makeup. I like like putting on a show because I think it's important because I'm a, I'm a magician. Of course I like ceremony and ritual. Mm. Um, but I think the real problem with just art and why art is allowed to be just is the fundamental denial of something that was, I think the actual beautiful seed that gave root to the flowers of evil of the 20th century, which is in Gabriel Denunzio and his concept of the life as a living work, as a work of living art. Like you, your life must be a work of art. And today we have said, no, that's not possible. That's a bad idea. Like you're allowed to make art. You're allowed to enjoy art. You're allowed to make your life about art but your life cannot be art because if our bodies are capable of living art, then you reach, then you, you've, you've reached almost just a, a massive gulf of horror. Like I think the real problem comes in the form of video games because everybody can say like video, because a lot of people say video games are art. I'll say, okay. Um, so what is art is you experiencing another body experiencing things. It's different from a movie. It's different from a book where there is a set narrative, but if you are just in a virtual body and you, what your experience is, is art. Why can't your experience, your lived experience be art? You know, what are you escaping from? If not the fucking astounding ugliness of your life, Mm. Heavy. Is there a saving grace in video games? Because there is artistry to video games, right? Or is there is is the video game a kind of the the most the ultimate substitution as you've kind of laid out if life is supposed to be lived as a work of art? And instead, one outsources that to to the video game avatar. Well, I like dreaming, but I wouldn't want to dream my whole life away. I th I think it's I think there's a place for every form of art, mm -hmm. and I think there's a a place for escapism. But I also think that we can't just live our whole lives that way, as so many do. Mm. Um, do you think that the responsibility slash gift of dreaming the dream of your own life and actually living that out is something that everyone can take part in. Um, I'll, I'll, let me just refer to this idea that, you know, when we were nomads living in this Dunbar number type societies, there would be perhaps a priest or a shaman who would be the people who um, would take care of that task, right? To dream the dream for everyone else to live out which then that dream would 
compose the semiotic and mimetic context that everyone else kind of lives in vicariously because it's it might be that it's not for everyone uh would you agree yeah i think that is the natural order i would agree to that i think it would be criminal to say like you know to say to somebody who has made their life based on being um the best at at an art or at a skill and say like well, you know, you're just caught, you're just caught in somebody else's dream. You're not really living. That would be miserable. That would be a horrible thing. But to the person who must indeed dream the dream for everybody, it, it is, again, it's a duty. It's a responsibility. It's not like that person is be. and this is, I think, the real issue is like, there's a difference between being an egoist and an egotist. And the egoist who works for their own will and acts upon that I think there's a net positive in every single case of that. There's a net positive if you're doing your will because your will is natural and it is a product of nature and it can't, so it can't be wrong. Um, but the egotist who cares about their ego, which is just the, the face, just the mask, not the will, they have a net negative in every case. They're just always making things go bad for others because that only does well by pushing down the great person will raise everybody up with them. And I think that that is the great myth of Arthur, like King Arthur in his being King Arthur is able to raise up the entire people of England. Like, you know, in, I don't know if you watched like um, fuck Excalibur, it's like, you know, you are tied to the land. And when he is doing badly, the land is doing badly. And when he's doing well, everybody does well. That is the responsibility of the dreamer. Hmm. And so in a situation where the internet has sort of rendered this, this ability of perhaps the few individuals who are responsible for dreaming that dream, uh, the internet might've made that a little bit harder. We know that not only is it a matter of saturation, but it's also a matter of, programming, semiotic programming, mimetic programming. Uh, there's this idea of the auto cult, uh, belief systems that are uh, optimized to such a degree using artificial intelligence and are done with, with such big knowledge of our own psychographies that they're able to inscribe us into a dream. And with such, with such proficiency, this is precisely the devil's toy box video that you just recently released, which was absolutely mind blowing. Um, what came to mind was, was the automated cult. So perhaps do you see, I think, I think I'm, you're going to say yes, I, but do you think there's space for a, for a King Arthur individual in the near future to come out of such a constrained environment? Yeah. I mean, I think that is what we're ha what's happening. You know, we're going to have even more powerful ones because they had to overcome this. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I also think the tragedy is in people who would have been satisfied with their lives being given endless desires. So they will always be dissatisfied. I think that's more tragic. Like, I, I don't know. I don't give a fuck about people who have a predilection for power. If you fail, it's your fault. You, you, you could have, cause you could have done otherwise, but for the person who was happy with their life, but learns to be miserable from the internet, that is a tragedy. Like, and I think that this is especially prevalent in modern marriage. I see like, and just from personal experiences, people that I know 
who had tons of divorced parents. And I think the, a lot of divorce has its roots in movies that they watched as kids. Like I deserve the dream. I deserve that perfect life. And they never realized that it was a dream. So they spent, you know, they get something good, something really good, which in the past would be like, this is the best thing ever. You know, we have, we have kids, we have cars, we have a house, we have food. Ah, I'm not happy with it. I want the perfect dream, which doesn't exist, but they never learned that it doesn't exist. So that is the greater tragedy. The greater tragedy is the, the capturing of desire and directing it really towards nothing. You know, there's no, it's it, what you, you made money off of the movies, you made money on your product, but we've, we've fundamentally destroyed uh, culture in a big way. Like there's no more satisfaction with the small things. If you go on the internet enough. <laughs> I want to ask you a little bit more actually about your, your thoughts around digital sexuality and particularly around um, the way that porn is, is affecting how we express our sexuality. It's something that I'm super interested in. In part, as I said, there's a personal component to it because I have actually battled what, I, I don't know if I call it like porn addiction, but certainly like heavy porn usage in multiple times. I had a conversation, in fact, on the show with a, uh, a current porn star and producer who has a website called Lustery. And they have a, a private community, essentially, where people make their own content. It's like a private amateurs. It's like really. And I actually found it, fascinating that is a very um creative outlet it's not just becoming a passive masturbator to whatever you want on the screen but actually kind of becoming exhibitionistic with sexuality but what that is not i think the the norm the norm is is a very pacified um passive relationship with the screen i know you talked about in your in your video with uh, on on Reich and the excessive masturbator. And I think it's just like a, it's a massive thing affecting young men in particular, essentially learn what sex is and how to be a sexual thing, how to be a sexual person through, through this interaction with the screen. And one of the ideas I found, especially kind of stimulating in your video is the sense that the anima itself becomes projected onto, into the digital rather than being this, this, uh, this being this like wonderful internal feminine that one can dance with and thus learn how to interface with, uh, with, with flesh and blood women as a, as a kind of analog of that relationship. Instead, one, one's anima becomes like the voice or the face of this matrix that we play with. And then it just leaves, there is no way to analog that onto a flesh and blood human being. I wonder if you could expand a bit just on what you think about this uh, yeah, digital sexuality. The screen has its own animal magnetism. The screen is magnetic. And I think that that's something that's not fully understood. Like I get a, a lot of the guys who are like, porn is degenerate. And, but also like women are wicked, evil, like society and feminism have turned them into evil beings. It's like, no, it, you know, it, it always took, a degree of skill and communication and intelligence to be able to talk to women, to be able to have relationships in general. And they would rather, the, the way they view it is more like, you know, I'm taking a, a refuge from evil modern bodies into the perfect digital realm because they don't realize like, 
this is not just screen as a bed. It is screen as a magnet. They are not being repulsed by women. They are being dragged in by the internet. Um, and I, th I think that's a huge misunderstanding a lot of people make. Like, and also what I would say, just to add on, more, more horrifying, like, yes, our personal anima jumps into the screen. But I do honestly think that, like, because there is our personal anima, but there's also the anima, the collective anima. And so the internet itself has a massive anima figure. Like, there is an, an archetype in the internet. Like, the anima is not just mine is there and yours is over there. There's one digital mother who has thousands of little prophetesses that our anima goes into. Wow. That's a Metropolis's mm -hmm. robot lady, right? Exactly. One, again, one star in sight. Queen Bee. And I, to connect it even further, like this is, I'm planning on doing a series where I'm essentially going, because meme analysis has been going on for like almost two years now but I'm going to try to kind of consolidate my thoughts into a narrative, into a narrative of the internet, a mythological framework. And silent films actually do have a lot to do with it. Metropolis and Kabiria. So in Kabiria, there is um, Moloch, like the Carthaginians worship Moloch and they are feeding children to Moloch. My vision of the internet is that of a labyrinth. And we know the Minotaur is in the labyrinth, but I view it not just as the Minotaur who is uh, sexual and violent. We also have the ball of Moloch there who is like greed uh, and greedy sexuality. And of course at the center of the labyrinth is that digital mother. Um, so that's my reading of it. Like, so we do have this kind of techno maze that's present in Metropolis. That's so cool and machines that we feed people to. You're a young guy, right? You're 20 years. I mean, I'm not that much older. I'm 25. But is there anything that you notice about the young, the teens now that is worth picking up on? Yes. I was, I was just uh, at a friend's, like, um, my girlfriend and I, we teach classes. Like, um, she does art classes. And I'll go and I'll help. And one of our students, it was just his birthday the other day. And he was saying how he was listening to music and he's like, oh, there was something there. And I, I realized, and he's like, oh, that would be a good sound for TikTok. Um, the mode of perception that young people have has already been massively made to perceive memes. Like the young mind perceives and analyzes memes at a rapid rate in a way that even we can't like, um, there's, there's a, you know, something Crowley talks about, which is like, when you learn magic and you can learn to read symbols, you start to perceive reality differently. Like you can uh, understand it according to that value system. But this is one that it's like, how do I make effective media? How do I make something funny? How do I make something cool? How do I make something cute? Just constantly. That is the mode of perception that has been adopted. And that's really just one app that has influenced that. Now you think about every other app, every other website, every other game, how that all builds up into a new, completely unrecognizable form of perception, one that I think will end up being 
ultimately schizophrenic, one that is a completely fractured system. Whereas Crowley and the occult systems, it's a pretty unifying, like up, up raise, it's a, it's a raising up. That perception is for the purpose of greater mm. power. But this is the opposite. This is, I'm going to give everything to everybody. Can we design our tools and then they design us. Listen, Chris, this, uh, this might be a good place to wrap up, mate. I think. All right. This is a good one. Thank you for having me on. It's been great. Um, I mean, you've mentioned the channel a few times, but I wondered, like, is there anything else you'd like to plug on here? Um, the comic, yeah, the comic books that I do with my girlfriend. It is at Aonic Comics on Instagram. You can read my, my headless Saturn in space book there. That's sweet. I mean, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. <clears throat> I hope that this isn't the last chat we have. I'd love to get you back on to talk. Yeah, to I'd you. be very happy to come on. Thank you. Fucking rock and roll, man. Daniel, anything thank you so much, Chris. No, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, everybody check out Meme Analysis on YouTube if you want to get edified about the mythology of the internet. One yeah. of the best things out there. No better place to get it. Hello, people, once again. And if you made it this far, well done. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you like what we're doing, then please consider supporting us on YouTube and on your podcast app, sharing the content round and talking to people about it. And also consider giving us a donation on patreon.com forward slash technosocial so we can keep growing the show. Ciao.